uh, grab your Bibles, make your way to the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. Uh, we're returning to our series that we kicked off a couple weeks ago. Of course, we had some weather incidences, but we kicked off a couple weeks ago called Awaken. And this is a series we are using to kick off this year to awaken our, our spiritual selves. And another word for awaken is revival. And throughout this series, what we're going to be doing and what we've done already is we've looked at the leadership and the life of an individual by the name of King Josiah. And it's found here in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. You can also read about Josiah's life in 2 Kings in chapter 22 and 23. The word awakening means to be revived. And that's what biblical and spiritual revival is meant to do in our hearts, in our lives, in our family. And what we see in Scripture is spiritual revival. Biblical revival happens when God's peop- God shows up in his people's lives, and his people respond to it. They don't just see him moving, they just don't hear him speak, but they respond to it, and it causes that individual to begin to change. And then it also flows out in individuals' lives that are around them. Saw a couple weeks ago, revival and awakening showed up in King Josiah's life. And what it led to was an awakening of an entire nation in the nation of Israel. I personally believe, because I see it in Scripture, that God wants to show up in our lives. And God wants to be with us because he's pursuing us. He loves us, as we just sang about. And he wants us to be pursuing after him. And the way we do that is we open up the Word of God and we apply the biblical principles that we see throughout the Scripture into our life. We think about awakening and revival There might be some people here this morning who don't really think that needs to happen. There might be some people this morning who don't feel they need an individual revival or a personal revival in their life. Everything's going okay. It's not really that bad. We might not think as a church we need a corporate type of revival or a corporate type of awakening. Some of y'all may even look out into the world and into the nation and think, well, you know, it's it's all right. It's working. I want to give you some findings from a group called George Barna. They're a research group. What they did is they found some very dangerous trends that are happening within the church and are beginning to develop in America. This particular study was done 10 years ago, but I think we're beginning to see more of this fruition coming about in the church today, coming about in our nation today, in our communities today, and maybe even in our families study said there's a rising view that Christianity is, in fact, an extreme religion. They also found that one-third of Christians under the age of 40 agree with same-sex marriage. And between the years of 2012 and 2015, there was a rise of seven percentage points of people who wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And it rose from 37% in that time period to 44%. And with that trend continuing today, they say they believe that over half of America wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It's fine if you believe in him, but keep him to yourself. 
Less than 50% of millennials, that'd be people born from 1980 to 2000, people in that age group in their 20s and 40s today, they believe that Jesus was not God. Yet at the same time, 92% of them believe that he was a great historical figure. The majority of those polled would prefer to define themselves by their family, define themselves by their job, rather than the religious beliefs. We come here to 2 Chronicles in chapter 34, and what we see that God is revealing to us in this passage in the life of Josiah and what led up to his reign as king is Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, were heading down the exact same road that America and many churches in America are going down today. The road the Israelites went down, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you're going to find out it eventually led to their destruction and their captivity. But here in 2 Chronicles, between the years of 640 and 609 B.C., a new king emerged named Josiah, who decided in his heart, in his mind, and as the king, that he was going to go against the current ways. And he was going to lead the nation of Israel back to an awakening and back to a revival. And so he was used by God to lead the people in and around his life back to God. And I want us to read our passage this morning. We're going to be in verses 8 through 21. And I just want to ask for your grace because there are going to be some names in here that I'm most likely going to butcher. Okay? And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know there are a lot of fun names. And you hope that you don't get called to read those names out loud in a group. So... Yes, I did go to seminary, but believe it or not, they do not have a class that teaches you how to pronounce some of these Old Testament names. So, you pronounce it how you want. We know Josiah is pronounced correctly. All right? Beginning in verse 8, the word of the Lord says, Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan and the son, the son of Aziliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah and the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, from all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jehath and Obadiah, the Levites, of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam, of the sons of the Kohathites, to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. Verse 14. While they're bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king. 
and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and given it to the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. Start off, I want us to remind you of Josiah's resume, which begins at the opening of this chapter. At the age of eight, eight years old, Josiah becomes king. And he becomes king because the servants of his father, who was king, got together and had a type of business meeting. And they decided the best course of action would be to kill the current king and place the eight-year-old in the leadership role. So at the age of eight years old, he becomes king. Then at the age of 16, Josiah makes a personal decision that he is not going to follow in the footsteps of his father, and he is not going to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather, but instead that he is going to seek after God. And so then at the age of 20... He begins moving to cleanse Jerusalem and begins cleansing Judah and Israel of all their sinful ways. Now imagine for Josiah at the age of 20 when he comes up with this decision and this plan, I imagine it was not the popular decision. I imagine it was not the vocal majority or the vocal minority, but he decided he's going to do it anyway. And so by the age of 26, where we come to our passage this morning, he begins rebuilding the temple, which was the house of God, and symbol to God's people that God was dwelling in their midst. And so Josiah's resume is very impressive, but there are a lot of things that were going against him. First off, he was the son of a bad king. He was the son of a king that was murdered by his own servants. He was young. He was inexperienced. The world around him was in a state of spiritual decay. It was, a, it was a place of national idolatry, debauchery, and wickedness were running rampant amongst God's people. And in Josiah's day, the house of God, the temple, which we could compare to kind of like the church today, was where God's people would gather to worship God and to hear the word of God. It had been neglected. And the individuals in Josiah's day who were to be godly were ungodly. It was a world where all would seem hopeless. But instead of looking out into his world at his young age and saying, well, it's just too big of a task, or giving an excuse on why something couldn't happen or something couldn't change, what Josiah does is he seeks the Lord for four years, and then he's moved to action. This awakening began in the effort of one man seeking the Lord and then responding to the Lord and his personal pursuit carried over into the people of Israel. In our passage, we see some principles to have an awakening in our life because revival and an awakening has to begin with us individually, personally, before it can flow into the church. 
before it can flow out into the community, before it can flow out into your family. It has to begin personally with our own heart. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, Josiah was positioned by God. He decided personally that he was going to pursue after God no matter what anyone else was doing around him. And he placed a priority on the holiness in his life and the things around him. But what do you do from there? And what can we use to apply to our life? Well, look again in verse 8. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land, I just want to remind us, at this particular point in history for Israel, it has been divided into two territories, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so when it says that he cleansed the land, even though Josiah was in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, he didn't just hang out there in the southern kingdom. He didn't just hang out in Jerusalem. He was going to decide that all the nation of Israel, all the people of Israel were going to have a cleansing. And so he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So here's Josiah. When we read 18th year of his reign, he's 26 years old. He begins cleansing the land. He begins cleansing the house. He begins cleansing the kingdom. And his cleansing began with the things which he saw and recognized that were distracting the people from the presence of God. And so he decides first, after he has sought the Lord for four years, his first course of action is that he's going to get rid of all the sinful behavior that were turning the people's attention away from the Lord. And then he comes back to Jerusalem to repair the house of the Lord his God. And it's very significant that it says the house of the Lord, his God. And what that tells us there in verse 8 is what Josiah is doing in this, mo- in this moment was his personal pursuit. This was not a national pursuit of going after God. This was not a national awakening. The people haven't all come back and begun worshiping God. But Josiah didn't have the backing of the people. Of course, he's the king, so he didn't necessarily need the popular vote. He didn't have the backing of the people who maybe spoke the loudest. He didn't have the backing of the people who had the opinions. He didn't care. Because it was about God. It was about his pursuit of God and his desire for God's presence to engulf the people around him. And so it begins this renovation project. And instead of Josiah being canceled by his culture, what he decided, because he sought after God, is that he was going to cancel the way the current culture was going. And he was going to give them a new direction. And sometimes when people think of Christians, they think we had the unpopular decision. Sometimes we come across as too harsh or closed-minded. But we have to stand upon the truth of God's word no matter what direction the culture is going in. And we have to call sin for what it is, but we are told in Scripture we have to do it in love. But in order for things to change, it begins with us like Josiah first pursuing after God. And so we read this and say, well, what happened to the temple? I mean, obviously King Solomon built the temple, but what happened? Well, if we were to go back a few chapters within 2 Chronicles, we'd come across a man by the name of King Hezekiah. This would be Josiah's great-grandfather. 
And we would find in King Hezekiah's reign that he also did a renovation project concerning the temple of God. And during his reign, because he took care of God's things, we're told that there were riches and honor and silver and gold and precious stones. And the storehouses throughout the kingdom were full and there was prosperity in the land. But then King Hezekiah dies. And his son takes the throne. His son's name was Manasseh, King Manasseh. He was an ungodly leader. And after he dies, his son takes the throne. That was King Amon. And between both of their kingdoms, both of their times in leadership, what they did is they took the treasures that had been developed through King Hezekiah's reign to fuel their own ungodly passions. They began building altars to idols, and they began uh, giving sacrifices to these idols and these, these monuments that they built. And so the temple was ransacked for idolatry and the things that were not of God. And during Manasseh and Ammon's reign, when we put it all together, there was 57 years of spiritual decay. 57 years for spiritual decay to eventually affect, infect the nation. And so we come here to King Josiah, we said, well, what did he do about it? He rebuilt. And we can take a lesson just from this rebuilding process. Awakening needs a good foundation. Josiah began by looking inwardly, seeking God personally, which we saw that a couple weeks ago. And in Josiah's inward renovation, it led to an outward renovation. So we first have to allow God to deal with our hearts before we can see an awakening in our family or in the church or in the community or in our nation. The house of God in Josiah's day was the physical manifestation of God's presence, that he was with his people and continuously in scripture it represented the heart of God. So if the temple was doing well, the people were doing well because they were pursuing after God. But if the temple was falling apart, that symbolized the people were also falling, falling apart. They weren't pursuing after him. And so Josiah's moved to begin this foundation work and in simple terms he undertook a restoration process but it was more. Josiah knew that for the people of God to return to the Lord, they needed to be able to be with the Lord and have the Lord in their life. And for that to happen, the house of the Lord had to be repaired so they could come and hear God's voice, so they could come and be in God's presence, so they could gather with other people of God. And we turn to the New Testament, what we're told in the New Testament is we are the temple of the Holy Spirit which makes us have to ask, how is our house of God? How is our foundation? I've encountered a lot of people who believe in God, but they have a lot of shaking foundations. Jesus titled these foundations as sand. For example, there are some people who claim Christianity, and they say it's all about wealth and health. Now, if you read through the scriptures, you'll never find God teaching that. You'll never find Jesus even saying that. So if you came to Christ and became a believer because you believed you would make you healthier or would make you wealthier or you have less problems in your life, then I want to tell you this in love. You have come under false preconditions. You have accepted a false theology. 
and a false doctrine. Hear what Jesus says. This is John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation. The word tribulation means trouble. He also said in Matthew, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you because of my name's sake. Now, why would Jesus say these things if when we came to Christ, all we were ever going to experience was health and wealth and prosperity and good things? Because he wanted us to know the truth. That's not what Christianity is. Jesus never instructs. You can read all four Gospels. You can read the writings of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. You can read through James, and you'll never see instructions that, you know what, if you just think good thoughts... Good things will happen to you. That's not biblical at all, but there's a lot of people in the church that believe that. If I just do good things, then good things will come. That's called karma. That's not Christianity. It comes from Hinduism and Buddhism. But there are believers who believe that. When we stand for Christ and we stand for God in this world, is what we're called to do as believers. We are ambassadors for Christ. The ultimate thing that's going to happen is we are going to stand against the world because the world is in sin. We are going to stand in opposition. And that may sound harsh. That may sound really hard to hear. But we stand opposed to the world's ideologies because we agree with God's truth as found in his word. That's what Josiah came to understand. He saw his world was falling apart. People were being distracted. They were going all different directions, everywhere but to God. And he knew that it had to be change. This means there's going to be times as believers, we're going to have to stand in opposition to what the people of this world naturally want to do. It's because of this that sometimes Christians are viewed as extremists. But as a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, then it is normal for you to believe things that are different than the world. It's normal for you to be different than people who don't know Christ. And so what we do is we look out into our world and whether we're watching the news and whether it's good news or bad news, I don't know. And we test everything through the lens of God's word, not what's the popular opinion, but through the word of God. And when we do that, we live by it. The Bible says you're going to face opposition. And I'll be honest, I don't get it right all the time. My wife said amen in her head, I could hear it. But that's the reality of things. And so what happened in Josiah's day that ended up leading to an awakening? We'll look in verse 9 through 11. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God. 
which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring. Verse 11, they gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And we can read over that and like, okay, they've got a bunch of people together and they start doing stuff. But it reveals something about an awakening. An awakening needs faithful stewardship. To see an awakening, we have to be honest and we have to be faithful to what God has given us. And though the temple was being built in Jerusalem, what we read through all of that, and we can kind of breeze over it sometimes, is that the offering was taken from all over the land. Everyone who lived in the area of Israel and Judah began giving. And so we have to remember that this this nation, even though Josiah is king, this nation has been divided over something called worship. Where should they worship? Who should they worship? But Josiah, when he comes into power, when he becomes the king, he rallies everyone to get behind the rebuilding of the temple. Those who didn't live in Jerusalem were giving to the temple that was in Jerusalem. And so this renovation wasn't going to directly impact their home. It wasn't going to directly impact their family or their town or where they lived, but everyone was getting behind it. They saw the need for it. And so our question about being faithful stewards is how faithful are we to what God has given us? And I just want us to hear the word of God concerning the things in our life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I have another confession. I hate money. I mean, I have to have it, but I hate it. It makes me more aggravated than any other substance on this planet. It makes me lose sleep. But when we come to Matthew 6, 24, and this is Jesus commanding, he says the word money, we read it as money, but the Greek word for money there in Matthew 6 is the word mammon, which means not just money, but all of our possessions. So you cannot serve both God and all your possessions. Jesus says that's impossible. And so we have to say, am I allowing God to have access to all the things in my life? Are they fully at his disposal? That's what being a faithful steward is. That there is nothing in my life that is off limits to what God wants to do and how God wants to use it. Now, if we were to just say, okay, let's just focus on that whole money aspect. Because, you know, they always talk about money at church. No, we don't. (laughs) But let's just focus on some scripture. Okay, so Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. One of the more popular verses or well-known verses concerning the tithe is Malachi 3.10. It says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And therefore, Thereby put me to the test. Only time in Scripture God allows us to test him on something. And guess what? It has to do with the tithe. 
says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so this is a foundational principle that God has given us throughout his word, that if we trust God with what he has given us, then God will bless what we have. That doesn't mean wealthy, healthy type of thing. He'll bless us with what we have. And sometimes God only gives us so much because we would ruin it. We would waste it away if he gave us more. But the word gave, in the people in Josiah's day, it says they gave. That word gave there in the Hebrew means they devoted and entrusted what they had to the complete work of the Lord. The people of the land brought to the house of the Lord what they had, what they could do, and then they fully submitted it to him. He said, it's yours anyway. You're just letting me borrow it while I'm here. And so the Bible instructs us in 2 Corinthians that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word cheerful there in the Greek means one who is willing to give and do anything. Well, that's a new definition of being cheerful. God loves those who are willing to give and do anything for his kingdom. And so if we want to see an awakening, we have to give the Lord what is already his. And then we see in Scripture that he blesses that giving in our giving, we fully submit it to him. It's yours. I mean, I've seen this happen before. If you're tithing, don't write in the memo, this is for this part, portion of the tithe is for this, this portion of the tithe is for this. Give it. God, it's yours. You do what you need to do with it. I'm submitting this to you. And so, when we give here at church, because some people are like, well, where, where does the tithes and the offerings go? When you give here at church, it goes to spreading the gospel. It goes to keeping the lights on and the heaters on and, and the air conditioners on. It goes to, uh, to missionaries. It goes to conventions. It goes to where the gospel is being spread. And if you really want to know every single detail, then here's the thing. After service, we're going to have a family meeting. Be short, and you can come, you can see how everything gets laid out. But we just give it to God. And not just our money. Remember, going back to that word mammon, we give God our abilities. We give God our talents. Something else we give is our time, which may be some of our biggest investments. Well, what else happened? We look in verse 12. And the men did the work faithfully, over them were set Jehoth and Obadiah the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. Okay. Well, what we can take from that is awakening needs a unified effort. Everyone was plugged in. It wasn't just the king. An awakening can't just be the pastor or the elders or the deacons. It takes everybody to work together. 
There was Josiah the king leading the march. The priests were involved. It was an inclusive act. Everyone was involved in some way or another, whether they funded the project or worked on the project or oversaw the project or led the project. There were so many moving parts, and everyone was plugged in. Everyone was involved. Everyone wanted to be a part about what God was doing. On Jesus' last night, he delivers a prayer that is for us today. And this is his prayer that he prayed for you and for me. I do not ask for these only, and that's speaking of the disciples that were in the upper room with him that moment, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that's those who have accepted Christ and become Christians, that's us today, that they may be all one. Just as you, Father, and me are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me, and the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as I, as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly, guess the word, one. Why? Why is that so important, Jesus? Well, he says it again. So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you have loved me. One. Unified. And so here in Josiah's day, there are so many different types of people doing different types of tasks, doing different types of jobs. But guess what? They all had one goal in mind. They were going to restore the temple. Our goal as a church is to glorify God, and we do this by uniting together as one body to be the light and salt of this world and by taking the gospel into the world. That's our purpose. Our purpose isn't to have more committees. is isn't to have more meetings or more small groups or more things on the calendar. I mean, those are all wonderful and things that are showing activity and that we are alive. But all those things have to have the purpose of kingdom advancement, And that only comes through the means of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to have a unified heart means we are all to take an active role within the church. In some form or another, God has brought you here to strengthen this church body. Not just to sit in a a chair or or, or to attend a small group or or, or to attend some of our activities that we have. He's brought you here to strengthen this church family. And you may not be a Bible preacher. You may not be a Bible teacher. You may not be a builder. You may not be good with certain age groups, whether that's young ones or old ones. But you may be a great prayer warrior. You may be a great ear for someone to talk to. You may be a great comfort. You may be someone who just loves to visit with people. You love just to sit down and have conversation. Whatever it is, God has brought you here for a purpose, to strengthen this church family. And we are out of a unified effort. Final thing we see begins in verse 14. So while they're bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hekiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
You know, some of those books are really page turners, right? So they find this book that had been given to Moses that contains the law. Verse 15, then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king. And further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. Verse 19, And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for those who are left in Israel and in in Judah, Concerning the words of the book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. Besides the king, he's the boss. He, he calls the shots. But he reveals something to us when he hears the law of the Lord that we need in our heart to have an awakening. An awakening needs a humble heart. Josiah heard the law of God, and it says there he tore his clothes. Josiah just might have been the most righteous individual at this point in time in this nation. But when he hears the perfect word of God, when he hears the truth and the holy standards of God, it brings him to a place of repentance. The tearing of clothes is a visible sign of inward sorrow, of inward repentance and humility. How do we respond when we hear the word of God? Are we indifferent to it? Are we numb to it? Is it living and active like it says it is in our life? Josiah heard the law of God. Those books that if you're reading your Bible reading plan, those books that you're going to get through really quick. I mean, I'm talking Leviticus, the latter part of Exodus, you know, Numbers. It's your word, sorry. But anyway, he hears this word. He recognizes his own sinfulness, even though he's probably the most righteous man in the country at the time. But he recognizes his own sinfulness. He tears his clothes in humility. One thing I I have found in my time in ministry is sometimes we can become numb or indifferent to the Word of God or even bored with the Word of God because we're so familiar with it. I've heard that story before. Yeah, I know that verse. I may not know the reference, but I know that verse. I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 I've heard a, a, a sermon on this, or I, I've heard someone teach on this. I've been in a small group that, that studied this before. I got it. And with that sort of mindset, we can have our ears blocked and our hearts hardened, and we can come to this scary place where we actually feel God's word is irrelevant, that has nothing to say to us. I also found that and I've gotten in danger of doing this too. 
Sometimes we can spend more time reading books about God's word than actually reading God's word. Sometimes we can spend more time listening to preachers preach God's word or teachers teach God's word, listen to podcasts, and us actually being in God's word. When we're having people feed us, in reality we have the word of God, we have the spirit inside of us, and we're supposed to be allowing God to feed us through his voice. Not through a preacher or a teacher or a podcast or a book. When we come through the, the Bible, the Bible, the Word of God, it reveals the holiness of God. And since by nature we are sinners, all of us, there's not a perfect person in this building, including the guy with the microphone. And since we are all sinners, when we come into the Word of God and we open the Word of God and we need to hear the voice of God speaking to our heart, it should automatically bring us to a place of repentance. God, I am not worthy. I mean, if Paul was the chief of sinners, how can we come into the word of God and hear the voice of God, the holiness of God, and say, well, yeah, that was good. It's meant to have an impact on our hearts. And I'll tell you, I'm, I already said it before, I'm not perfect. I don't always get it right. But I believe after a worship service, after we've praised his holiness and his greatness and his glory, after we've heard his voice speaking to our hearts and we realize, man, I am so far off. I'm not even close. I wonder why the altar is not flooded more often. Why am I not down here more often? He is holy. He is righteous. And every day I struggle to meet his standards. Even on Sunday mornings, when I'm coming to preach the word of God, I struggle to meet his standards. Why aren't we humbling ourselves more before him and thanking him so much for loving us despite our shortcomings? To be in awe of him. The Bible says that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. Not even one. Wow, pastor, this is a really uplifting sermon. Here's the thing. God knows that about us, and he still sent his son to die for us. He knew all about our shortcomings. He knew all about our flaws. He knew all about our skeletons in the closet. He knew, knows all about the times we have been unfaithful. He knows all, all the lies we've ever to, told. He still loves us. He still died for us. He still invites us and claims us knows us. <clears throat> if you're a child of God, you are owned by God. He has purchased you with his son's blood. And he loves you. I think we should be more than all of that. Maybe just humble ourselves every time we walk through these doors knowing that, you know, I'm not just coming to church. I'm not just coming to a building. I'm not just going to listen to a pastor or sing a certain songs. I'm coming into the presence of holy. And I don't deserve to be here.
but he invites me in. To have an awakening in our life, we have to have a humble heart. We have to have a humble heart. And that may lead us to a place of repentance. The Bible says if we don't repent, we cannot be saved. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're realizing that, you know, I don't even know if I'm in a relationship with God. I don't even know if I believed in the biblical Jesus Christ and what he did. I didn't say you had to understand it all, but maybe you need to come to a place. I need to repent before a holy God. I need to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I need to be saved and forgiven and be given eternal life. And I can't do it on my own. I can't work hard enough. I can't do enough good things. I need to come and humble myself before him and say, God, I need forgiveness. I want to be saved. I want to be claimed by you. And if you're here this morning, the Bible makes it pretty clear on how to do that. It tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from the God of the living. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the only way. That's why Jesus said that there's no way to the Father except through him. But then he also reveals in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave, he gifted his only son, and that whoever, anyone, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, that's what I need to do. I didn't know what was missing, but now I know. We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask some of our worship team to come and lead us. And you can come down and say, Pastor Mike, I, I need to be saved. Or maybe you're like me as I was preparing for this message. God gave me two weeks to humble my heart. <laughs> maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father. Maybe you just need to turn around and kneel at your chair. Realize how awesome and worthy he is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, for your love, for your mercy, for your kindness. Thank you for your faithfulness, even though sometimes we are unfaithful. And thank you, Lord, that you love us in a way that we'll never fully understand in the sight of eternity. But Lord, I want revival in my heart, in my family's life. I want revival in the life of this church. So Lord, help us seek after you. Help us to pursue you. And realize how awesome you are. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who needs to begin a relationship with you, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that your spirit would get a hold of their heart. They would come down this aisle, and this would be the day of their salvation. We give you all the glory for you alone and worthy of it. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.